0: Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of James, chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1, go through verse 18 together this morning. And I uh, want, to, want to just chat, just kind of as, as we start, if we're going to go verse by verse through the book of James, I want to give you a little bit of background and, uh, and, and kind of information about the author and, and why... James. Why the book of James? And so, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The main idea of our time together this morning, the next two or three hours or so, um, you can laugh more than that, okay? I was joking. I know some of you may not think that, but that's okay. Um, the main idea of where we're going this morning is trials and temptations are both inevitable. Trials and temptations are both inevitable. And God intends them both to deepen our faith. Trials and temptations are both inevitable, but God intends both to deepen our faith. Have you ever ever asked the why question, the big why question, why this, why that? We're going to deal with some of that this morning. It's probably much easier to draw a crowd by preaching on the next and coolest topic, the latest and greatest that appeals to, to us, that would appeal to all of us. Um, like, uh, uh, like if we were to if we, we were to announce this morning that next Sunday um, we're gonna we're gonna preach on the three secrets of how to get out of debt or something. I mean, I, I don't know. Say stop spending money. <laughs> um. Anyway, I don't even know. You right, you get it right. But it, it's much easier to do that. But what happens in the process? Of just preaching the latest and greatest topics um, that would appeal to, to people, what happens in the process is we start taking the parts of the Bible that we like. We start tailoring them to what we want to hear. And then what happens is we start creating a Christianity that appeals to us. And when we do that, we inevitably ignore the tough parts of the Bible. The parts of the Bible that confront us, the parts of the Bible that cause us to change—a word that we don't like to use a lot. Why do I need to change? I'm great, or worse, we twist those parts out of the, out of context. We twist them out of context to fit our lifestyles. And the book of James, the book of James, is one of those tough and sometimes, most of the time, uncomfortable books. I mean, he, he starts right off here uh, with some discomfort. And so why do we study James? I'm glad you asked. Well, first of all, the author of the book of James is the half-brother of Jesus. And I love that. As I mentioned last um, Sunday, a lot of times James is referred to as Jesus' bold little brother. James had seen it all. He had experienced a lot of it. Can you imagine growing up being the half-brother of Jesus? talk about some sibling issues, right? I mean, talk about some sibling, right? But there's two primary reasons to study the book of James. First, we study the book of James to examine the relationship between faith and works. And that's important. James refers to faith in this short little book 14 different times. And on the other hand, this letter from James is filled with commands to obey. Out of 108 verses that we're going to look at, the book of James has 59 different commands. More than half of the verses are filled with commands. Obedience in the book of James is everywhere. Why is that important? Because genuine faith acts. And so as we look at faith and obedience, we're going to see that faith works genuine faith works and here's the issue with that we live in a day that as soon as you talk about obedience as soon as you bring up commands laws the works of the christian life people cry legalism right legalistic i don't want to be and and then they run away people today say that christianity isn't about doing this 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 and this and meanwhile james says yeah it is it's about doing some things. You don't just listen to the word, you do it. If you don't do it, your faith is dead. He goes as far as to say, as we'll see in chapter two, maybe you don't even have a faith. Rich Mullins, uh, Rich Mullins used to be a singer-songwriter back in the '90s. I, I had anyway, we'll just keep going. Back in the '90s, back in the good old, back, anyway. Um, he wrote Awesome God and, and all of those. He, he wrote a song um, uh, called Screen Door. Faith without works is like a song you can't sing. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. <laughs> Love that. Faith without works, like a song you can't sing. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. That's pretty useless, isn't it? Pretty useless. And so we examine... The 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 um, the relationship between faith and works. If I had to guess, if I had to guess, James might not make it as a pastor today, since there might not be as many members at his church because of the things he said. And so we've got to be careful to understand the relationship between faith and works rightly and biblically, and this book challenges us to do so. The point of James is clear, that there's a relationship between faith and works. If we try to separate the two, we can get shallow, we can get immature. And this is serious stuff, but there's another aspect uh, as to why we we, we we study the book of James. Faith not only acts, but James also teaches us that faith is effective in this world. And so the second reason we study James is to explore the impact of our faith on life in the world. James addresses many, many practical issues. Trials, Poverty, riches, materialism, favoritism, social justice, the tongue, worldliness, boasting, making plans, praying, what to do when we're sick, among many other things. And as we'll see, James sometimes moves from one issue to the next, which can kind of make it difficult to find the book's structure. But he returns repeatedly to how faith impacts not only the details of our lives, but also the lives of the people around us. Faith moves to take steps of radical obedience to make the gospel known all around the world, in all different kinds of contexts. And so let's read James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the one, blessed is the man who who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Isn't that encouraging? This <laughs> is so good, isn't it? It's so good. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Now, so James 1 here, these first 18 verses, introduces a variety of of themes, doesn't it? I mean, we've got trials in here, we've got temptations, we've got riches, we've got poor, uh, the, the, the lowly, we've got, we've got bringing forth the gospel, every good and perfect gift, deception, prayer. We've got a lot of different themes here uh, being introduced in these first 18 verses. But its primary focus here, as James is launching into this book, is trials and temptations. Anybody ever been through a trial? Okay, a couple of you. How about this one? Anybody ever been tempted? Oh, y'all messed up. I haven't, haven't been through trials, but you've been... Okay, anyway. All right, all right. <clears throat> Why do we go through trials and face temptations? How do we go through trials and face temptations? I mean, the, word, the, the words trials and tempt and, and tempted all occur in this section. And if I could summarize the main theme of these verses in one sentence, here's what it would be. Trials and temptations are both inevitable. It's our main theme for the day. And God intends both to deepen our faith. That trials and temptations are both inevitable. We're going to see them. We're going to face them. The two of you that have already experienced a trial, you're ahead of the rest of us. (laughs) And God intends both to deepen our faith. Sometimes we face trials on the outside and sometimes we face temptations on the inside and how we understand them and respond to them has everything to do with our faith. So there's three truths in this passage that I want to highlight that affect how we understand and respond to trials and temptations. You ready? Three truths. Number 1, God is sovereign over our trials. God is sovereign over our trials. Look back at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We can't count it joy unless God's in control. And so if, if we can count it joy, that must mean that God's in control. James tells us that trials are never out of God's control. That's uncomfortable to hear, isn't it? James telling us That that, that trials are never out of God's control is not something that I want to preach, much less I'm sure that you want to sit in here. But if God is sovereign, then that means that everything that we're facing, everything that we have faced, everything that we're going to face is never outside of God's control. Every trial we go through is under His control. And He accomplishes His purposes through trials. Now, I'm guessing, and I've kind of already alluded to this, that I'm not the only one that wishes this kind of passage wasn't in the Bible. Yet this is the most profound and crucial passage for, for hear this, mature and authentic Christian living a blasphemous theology today would present that God never wants you to be sick never wants you to be poor and that you should just name and claim health and wealth (laughs) name it and claim it baby like name and claim right and and I gotta I gotta tell you as blasphemous First of all, you're not that good. I'm not either. Like, we're not that good. To just name and claim healing, to just name and claim prosperity, to just name, we're not that good. God is, but that might not be His will for you. Now, hear, hear this, hear this, because this, this is important, because I know this is a slippery slope. James is writing to a hurting, and get this, predominantly poor community of Christians. He's writing to a group of hurting people and predominantly poor, and he's telling them to consider their trials, get this, a great joy. A great joy. Now, to really wrestle with this, because I think we have this this view of joy in our culture as being happy. Right? As being happy. There's a huge difference. Joy is more relatable with contentment. Joy is more relatable with contentment. The psalmist says, I have quieted my soul in the midst of chaos. Right, And so, and so what, what the psalmist is getting at here, I think it's Psalm 91, I don't know, it might be 131. It, it starts and it ends with a one. So just go through and find it. I've calmed and quieted my soul in the midst of chaos. I think it's 91. Anyway, somebody find it and tweet it. Okay, um... But, uh, but, but, but what, what that means is, right, I'm content with where God has me, right? That doesn't mean you have to be happy. It doesn't mean you walk in, right, with a smile on your face even and and, rejo- and and say I'm happy about what's happening. That's not what James is getting at. When James says to her, consider it a great joy, a pure joy, it's a command, an imperative, and a verb that addresses how we think, which is important. It's not about feeling. Trials don't necessarily bring a smile to our faces. This is not simply about putting on a happy face and pretending that everything's all good in the hood. In fact, I would go as far as to say that perhaps this should not be the first thing out of your mouth when you're encouraging someone who's going through a trial. (laughs) Consider it joy, brother! (laughs) Sister! God is preparing for you a crown. On the other side of this thing. No, I was talking to a dear brother yesterday, who's just fighting and fighting and fighting in life, has had things stolen from him, has had one of the roughest years of his life. And my first response was not, "Hey, God, God must be doing something." Like consider it joy, man. Be happy. Like go eat a Big Mac. God's just that's not that's not the response right when life comes crashing down on someone James doesn't intend for us to flippantly say consider it joy I think about I think about John chapter 11 when Mary and Martha approached Jesus after their brother Lazarus had died he didn't immediately start telling them that God had a purpose in this although he knew God did he knew Father did. Instead, he comforted them. And what else did he do? He wept with them. He wept with them. So, how do we experience pure joy when we encounter a trial? Notice that James refers to various trials in verse 2. Various includes small trials, big trials, minor trials, major trials. And sometimes we wonder why the little trials are there. And then when the big trials come, the tragedies, the difficulties that make everyday trials seem so small. We wonder what James was thinking when he tells us to count all of these things as great joy. I mean, how can the Bible be serious about this? And we need to realize... That trials are not joyful in and of themselves, but they're joyful when we realize they are under the authority of a sovereign God who is accomplishing His purposes through them. And what is He accomplishing? In verses 3 and 4, let's look at them again, verses 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James begins to pile on the ways that God uses these trials in our lives. He continues all the way to verse 12, where he puts a bookend on this section by mentioning trials again. God is encouraging these believers to embrace trials, not so much for what they are, but for what God wants to accomplish through them. And so through trials, we see four things that we learn to grow in his likeness, to be like Christ. Ephesians 5.1, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, imitate Christ, therefore, as his dear children, that trials help us to grow into the likeness of him. Secondly, we learn to trust his wisdom. Look look back at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We we see the implication here. It's clear. We're not there yet when it comes to wisdom. Amen? Amen. We are lacking something. And that something is wisdom, which is what we need when we walk through trials. Like verse 2, verse 5 gives us an imperative. He should ask God. This is what we are to do when we lack wisdom. Ask God. In relation to the wisdom of God, our wisdom grows through three different factors knowledge, perspective, and experience. Our limitations in all three of these areas lead to limited wisdom. And when we walk through trials, we realize we don't know all that is going on. I mean, did anybody ever have you ever looked at something? and said, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake. Hmm. I mean, I I thought parenting was going to be a piece of cake. (laughs) Like, especially the teenagers. (laughs) Because I I was a youth pastor. And so I hung with teenagers all, all the time. And I thought, man, once my kids get to the teenage years, like it'll be coasting. That was a lie from the pit of hell <laughs> that I bought into. Right? I I, I look at I look at. Um, well, anyway, let's keep going. I won't give you any more examples. You get the point, right? You get the point. The third thing. In trials, we learn to rely on His resources. Like, like, I don't know about you, but every time I've walked through a trial and looked back on it, one of my first thoughts is a reminder that He's enough. Because in the trial, in the trial, I'm looking for the solution. I'm looking for the answer. I'm looking for the right thing. I'm looking for, I'm looking for the next decision. I'm looking for the next. T- I'm I'm constantly analyzing the trial and trying to figure this thing out, right? And then I get to the other side and think, well, that was that was a waste. Because he's enough. And so and so in the middle of the trial, I might have gotten through it a lot quicker if I would have just stopped and said god you're enough let me just lean on you let me just let me just lean on your resources let me just let me just let me just lean into you a little bit and 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 proclaim that you're enough to get me through this thing to get me through this thing and then lastly and this is huge. We learn to live for his reward. James closes this section. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So he closes this by saying that the one who endures will be Blessed. Which is just one of the examples in the book of James that points us back deliberately to the Sermon on the Mount. And the key to understanding this whole book is realizing that James is leaning heavily on Jesus' teachings as the half-brother in the Sermon on the Mount. Only, he's doing it better. I mean, Jesus, Jesus right, three and a half years to teach all these things, James is going to take like four, five, 108 verses, and so he's like, he's like, I'm the guest preacher in the thing. I'm going to dumb all this stuff down and just hit you with it really fast instead of giving you all the stories that my brother gave you. Thanks, Sherilyn. I'm glad you got that. I appreciate that. I don't know if that was a courtesy chuckle or not, but I appreciated it. Okay? Because it just let me know that you were there with me. Okay? And so James, James, is just, James is just taking the teaching of Jesus, and when he talks about the crown of life that the one who endures will receive, there's two ways to misunderstand this. And this is huge, because first, I don't want you to get some, gem, some picture of this gem-studded headpiece worn by kings or queens, because most of the original readers of this letter would have heard the word right would have heard the word crown and immediately thought about the wreath that would be put on an athlete's head at the end of a race which is just which is just a, the you know like a like a wreath that you would hang on a door around and the picture here is that of running through the trials of life victoriously to receive the crown secondly the crown of life should not simply be thought of as a physical crown with great splendor no The crown is actually a symbol of receiving the glorious reward of eternal life. And so at the end of these trials, God meets us with life, eternal life. So consider it pure joy, because trials remind you that you're not living for this life, but you're living for the reward to come. That changes things. That shifts perspective, doesn't it? That I'm not living for here, I'm living for eternity, for the reward to come. We've already referred to it, but Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our momentary light affliction. How offensive is that? Well, Paul, Paul didn't know what I was going through, right? For our momentary light affliction, he clearly didn't go through COVID is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Is producing for us, I want you to get this, an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. An absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. My fear for us, when it comes to trials, and flippantly saying, consider it pure joy, is that we're just trying to make it through the trial. Like, like, my fear for the church of 2022 is that we're just trying to make it to the next Sunday. We're just trying to make it through the next message. We're just trying to make it through the next thing. We're just trying to make it through the next trial. We're just trying to make it through the next achievement. We're just trying to make it through the next big vote. We're just trying to make it through the next big instead of realizing that each one of us is striving for glory. Eternity. And like, Jesus put us here for His glory so that we could spend forever with Him. And so listen, the point is not making it to the next. The point is eternity. That He's preparing for you An absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. And when we see that, when we realize that, when we come to grips with that, it makes whatever you're facing today small. Well, Pastor, it's small. It's small. Listen, listen, I used to think trials were really big until they kept getting bigger and bigger. And bigger. I would have never, listen, I would have never thought things could have gotten harder than seven or eight years ago. Nine years ago. Ten years ago. I would have never anticipated, would have never anticipated that something this year would have been harder than COVID. Never. But the trials keep getting bigger. And, And get this, get this. Oh man, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. The whole point of the gospel is relationship. The whole point of the gospel is relationship. Okay? This is huge. This is huge. I'm really excited to share this with you. Can you feel it? Can you tell? Y'all awake? Okay. Okay. Y'all have had too many milkshakes on uh, April vacation, so we we got the... Anyway, okay. That was just me, clearly. All right. The whole key to the gospel is a relationship with God, first, access to God, and each other, the church, God's gift to believers, the fellowship of other believers, to hold each other's arms up, to push us to glory, to hold us accountable, all the, all the different things, right? The church, the gift of the church. On the flip side, the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. What's the first thing he's going to attack? Relationships. He's he's going to attack. He's going to attack your relationship with God. He wants to make you doubt God. He wants to make you doubt the sovereignty of God. If God is so good, then why would he bring you through this? You know the second thing he's going to attack? Your relationship with your family, your church family. The people that are supposed to hold you up, the people that are supposed to encourage you, the people that are supposed to have your back. Those are the first things that, that, that if the enemy can take away, if the enemy can attack, he wants to attack. That's why my role as your shepherd, Ian's role as your shepherd, our elders, our executive team, any leadership in the church is so heavy. Because our main job is to protect the unity of this thing. So that, so that, so that the Father can be glorified. Because the enemy's coming after it. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's cute. That ain't cute. That's war. He's declaring war on your relationships to make you doubt, mistrust, Turn your back against? I mean, how many people have you heard say in, in the last, I mean, it's not new in the, in the last two years. How many people have you, have you heard say in the last 20 years? Man, I like church at home. I like it. I get all the benefits of good music, better preaching, because I can turn it off whenever I want to. I can flip to the next preacher whenever this one says something I don't like. And I don't have to deal with the people. You hear that? That's the point. The before church and after church is way more important than what we do here in the middle. I'm not saying this isn't important. I'm not saying this isn't important. Hear what I'm saying. If we don't have relationship, if we're not talking about relationship with God, if we're not talking about relationship with others, all this is is a performance. All this is, all this is, all this is, all the music is, all my, all this is, my, my, manuscript that I'm nowhere near right now all this is is show which leads me to the next truth that we've got to deal with today is that we're responsible in our temptations God is sovereign over trials, but when it comes to temptations, we are responsible in temptations. The first truth we've seen is that God's sovereign over trials; therefore, our trials can be joy. But James wants to protect us against something here, which he explains in the second major truth of this passage. Okay, look at verses. Um, look at verses uh, 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Underline that. Star that. And He Himself tempts no one. But each person, verse 14, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. By his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth Death. Every trial brings temptation with it. But we have to be careful. We have to be careful not to take the next step in our minds and begin to assume that God wants us to turn from Him. That we're being tempted away from Him. It's such a slippery slope. But when we face a financial difficulty, think about this. When we face a t- financial difficulty, we're, t- we're tempted to distrust God's provision right when we face financial difficulties we're tempted to distrust God's provision when someone dear to us near and dear to us dies we're tempted to question God's love when we experience suffering we're tempted to question God's justice but know this God may test us but according to verse 13, he does not and cannot and will not tempt us. We are responsible and must take responsibility in temptations. The blame game doesn't work here. We can't pass the buck here. We must take ownership in temptation. And so so to talk about this, to talk about this, okay, we've got the time. I I want us to go to the origin of sin, because understanding who is responsible in temptation requires understanding the origin of sin. James clearly says in verse 13 that God is perfectly sinless. Everything in him resists sin. Evil is inherently foreign to him. He's aware of it, but he's untainted by it. And in no way can God be blamed for temptation and sin. So, who's responsible? To answer that question, Joel, Joel, James, different passage, holds up the mirror and says, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Who's responsible? Because the truth is, and this is this 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 is this is Bible 101. God is perfectly sinless. We are utterly sinful. Encouraged? <laughs> this is gonna be the next eight, nine weeks right here, as we walk through the book of James. But we need this. We need this. We need to be reminded of the, of the intensity of the love of Christ, that He loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The promises of the gospel all through this, even though we are utterly sinful, is huge. It's huge. It's huge. Sin just doesn't happen out of the blue. There's a process behind it. So so look at the process. Each person is tempted, verse 14, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So deception. Genesis 3, if you were to go back to the beginning, presents a perfect example of this process with Adam and Eve. The heart of sin is unbelief. Not believing God, not trusting God. We don't believe God when He says something is best for us, or another thing is not. And so instead, we question Him. We question Him. You look at uh, you, you look at someone and say, um, hey, "You you can go in all of these rooms in the house, but don't go in that room." Well, you you. That's a dare right? Like, what's the one room I'm going to go in now? That room. When we were back in COVID and we were looking around at different places to have church, we went and visited a a, a meeting place and they said, this room is off limits. You can't go in there. You can't. Only members can go in here. Well, I want to become a member now just because I want to see the room. Like, I don't, I don't want to pay the money. I don't want to wear the outfit. I don't want to do... I just, I just need to see the room now because you've told me I can't see it, right? And so, and so, and so this, is, this is where sin starts. And we see in Genesis 3 in the serpent's question, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? It starts with, Deception. Then, that deception stirs within us a desire. James says each one is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. The language here carries the idea of baiting a hook. Baiting a hook. It's almost it's fishing season. Anybody been fishing? No fish, get this, think about this. No fish knowingly bites an empty hook. Right? I mean, no fish knowingly, bites an empty hook. The idea is to hide the hook. And so temptation appeals to our desires. It attracts us, but hides the fact that it will kill us. Sin starts with disordered thought, which leads to disordered desire, and we begin to want that which will destroy us. That which will destroy us. And then we see deception, desire, verse 15, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, disobedience. We act on our desire, which then leads to death. I think James was a good preacher because he, he has here all the D's, right? The D's from deception to desire to disobedience And then to death. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of the creatures. The third truth I want to point you to God is sovereign over trials, God is sovereign over trials. We are responsible in our temptations. And then lastly, I want you to see that God is faithful. Do not be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above. So what do we do during trials and temptations? The very time when we are so prone to fix our eyes on our circumstances and miss what God has in store for our lives. What do we do in the midst of temptations when we're so prone to be dragged away and enticed by the desires that are at the core of our lives? We remember that God is faithful. James tells us in, in, in verse 17, there's no variation or shadow cast by turning. In your trials or temptations, don't believe the lies. Don't believe the lies. Remember that God is good. He's very good. And He wants that which is good for you. So trust Him. Trust Him. Trust Him in your trials. Turn to Him in your temptations. He is the source of everything good. And when it comes to His goodness... Three things I want to tell you and then we'll close. The first is this, His goodness is unchanging. God is constantly and consistently good. He's not like me and you. He never gets in a bad mood. Anybody just, anybody just lately just got in a bad mood? Yeah, okay. Thank you for your honesty, few of you. Just, he never gets in a bad mood. He never changes for the worse. He never changes for the better because he is already perfectly and ultimately and wonderfully good in every way. In every way. If he could change for the better, that would mean he wasn't ultimately good in the first place. But he is. His goodness is un. Changing. Secondly, His goodness is undeserved. We talked about grace last week. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. God's riches at Christ's expense. His goodness is undeserved. Verse 18 says that God chose to give us birth through the message of truth. So we're going to see a lot about, as we mentioned in the beginning, we're going to see a lot about works in James, but the foundation of those works is all about grace. See, God has given us new life based not on our works, but on His grace. He chose to give us birth. He chose to take His Word and write it on our hearts, hearts that were sinful to the core. And this is the Gospel message, the message of Christianity, that anything good in you is because of God's undeserved goodness towards you. Anything good in me is because of God's undeserved goodness toward me. God is the source of everything good in us. Were it not for Him, everything in us would be bad. We need His undeserved goodness to change us from the inside out. And that is what faith reveals on every level. Lastly, His goodness is unending. It's unchanging, it's undeserved, it's unending. We are the first fruits of His creatures. The the picture of the first fruits carries on the idea of the foretaste of that which is to come. What God has done in our lives to change our hearts by His goodness is only a preview of the day that He will come. When He will make all things new in all creation, the work He has done in our, in our birth and in our, in our salvation will one day lead to a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more trials and no more temptations and no more loss and no more grief. And in the meantime, take heart. He has saved us from our sin. And if He saved us from our sin, then we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that He will see us through our sorrow. And so contemplate this truth. The God who conquers sin and suffering through the death and resurrection of Jesus so that we can consider trials, pure joy, and face temptations with steadfast confidence. We can consider trials, pure joy, and face temptations with steadfast confidence. It looks like I've been challenged lately. Uh, the worship team is going to come. There's, there's, there's two animals I've been challenged lately to be like. I'll share them with you. One you may recognize. One might be a little new to you. Okay? Okay. Um, I've been challenged. I kid you not. Somebody came to me about a month or so ago. This is from a TV show, but they looked at me and they said, "They said, Travis, I want to challenge you to be more like a goldfish. You know why? Because a goldfish has a memory of about three seconds. Okay, goldfish has a memory of about three seconds, and so." And so uh, I I carry things. One one of the things about me um, that sometimes drives a little people drives some of the people close to me crazy is I, I can remember everything. Okay, like I I remember I, I remember weird stuff too. Um, Kristen says I don't remember everything the way that she does, but one of us is one of us is losing our mind, and it's not me. Anyway, uh, but anyway, anyway, I'm just kidding. Love you, honey. Um, but but uh, but but I remember I remember everything and sometimes that, that works to my disadvantage. Because I remember everything, um, I I remember signals um, and, and alarms will go off when I know hurt is coming. And so and so then like these barricades of safety and protection like like jump up around my heart and around my mind. And 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 the temptation in me therefore is to shut down. Right? Which isn't always good in my line of work of loving people. Right? And caring about people and protecting people. And so and so I've got to be more like a goldfish. And not look at you and say, Oh, well, you're just like the person that did this, you know, before, and so I've got to, you know keep my distance or hold you at arm's length or, or something like you, you get the point, right? So try to be more like a goldfish, shorter memory, three-second memory. The second animal that I've been challenged to be like, and this might, this might bother some of you, this might bother some of you if you have a, if you have a fear of this type of animal, okay? So I just, I don't, I don't think anybody's scared of goldfish. If you are, we'll get you help. <laughs> okay? Okay? But the second animal I've been challenged to be like is a bird. A bird. Anybody got a favorite bird? Robin, Robin, eagle. That's a good one. What's your favorite bird, Stephen? A what? Okay. (laughs) That one. That big? That's a big one? Okay. All right. Anyway, right? Why a bird? I'm glad you asked. Okay to fly above the situation. See, so many times when it, when it comes to trials and temptations, we're too close to them to, 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 to see God in them at all. We're too close to the situation to see what God might be doing, what God might be stirring in the trial. To, to see His sovereignty, to see His authority, to see His grace through the trial. What He might be trying to accomplish in me, my marriage, my family, the church, And so I'm too close to it. I can't see. I can't step back and see what God might be trying to do when it comes to temptation. When it comes to temptation, we're ruled by desire in the moment. We're we're ruled by the instant gratification of the next thing. We're ruled by what's going to make us feel a certain way in that moment. And so to be a bird is to step back from the temptation and to see that I'm better off saying no to this. I'm better off rejecting this right now because of the future, the way my future self is going to feel by the victory of saying no to whatever it is. Each one of you in this room has a different vice. And so whatever, whatever that temptation may be, but it's, it's stepping back, is rising above, and seeing that my future self in four hours is going to thank me, is going to praise me if I say no to this. But if I say yes to this, my future self in four or five hours, the shame, the guilt, that is going to eat me alive for hours, days, weeks, months to come, Is unbearable. So be a bird. Be a bird. And fly above the situation. See it for what it really is and don't lose the sovereignty of God, the authority of God in it and be able to say no to the sin. I believe that's what James is saying. Step back. Press into Him because He's in control. Press into Him because He's got this. Press into Him because He's enough for your desires. He's enough. He's enough. And if you haven't experienced that yet, if you haven't experienced the sovereignty of God in a trial, if you haven't experienced a win when it comes to temptation, then I encourage you, tap somebody on the shoulder in this room. Find somebody and say, look, I need to be a bird. I need help finding the sovereignty of God in this trial. I need help finding the strength to resist this temptation. Because it's eaten me a lot. And last thing I want to say. Last thing I want to say, I promise. Last thing I want to say. Trials and temptations will never come at a time when you want it to. I believe that's why James uses the verb and the imperative, expect them. Expect them. Expect them. Both of them. Be on guard. Be prepared. Knowing that a trial will come when you don't want it to, when you least expect it, when things should be the most exciting and happy in your life, know that you face an enemy that doesn't want that for you. And if you're not experiencing that, then you ought to take a really close look at what you're striving for. Temptation will never come at a time when it's convenient. It just won't. It just won't. That's why Paul, James, Jesus talk so much about being on guard and so today can I challenge you with that consider the sovereignty of God in trial and lean on his strength that he is enough in temptation because he is faithful in his time to produce a work in you that you wouldn't have believed if he told you that he wouldn't have believed that you wouldn't believe if He laid it out for you. But He wants to accomplish great things through you and through me. Believe that? Believe that? Let's pray. God, I thank You for Your Word. The timeliness of it. God, that we can trust your sovereignty and trial, that we can trust your authority and temptation. And so God, I pray that you stir our hearts for yours. God, that, 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 that you would help us to lay aside every weight and hindrance that's keeping us from seeing you in trial, that's, that's keeping us from winning victory over temptation, The two things that James deals with here in the first part of this passage. And God, I just pray that You would help us to win the victory. That You would give us the strength to lean on each other, to lean on You when it comes to both of these things. I thank You. I thank You for a place and a people like this one that hungers for Your Word. God, we... We want to get you right. God, we want to keep the main thing the main thing. And so God, we look to your word for wisdom. We look to your word for truth. Not what makes us feel good about ourselves, but about what pleases you. And so God, help that to be at the forefront of our minds as we go this week. In Jesus' name I pray.